This Bee Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate, so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K through 12th grade curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. If you want to bring IXL to your school, you can learn more at IXL.com backslash B-E. That's IXL.com backslash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, activity periods, RTI, therapy, and teacher appointments, and much more. With its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE. This is Dr. Karen, and this is the Are They 18 Yet podcast, where I help parents raise independent, self-sufficient kids without sacrificing their own identity and sense of purpose. I'm here to share practical day-to-day solutions for raising kind, successful, well-adjusted human beings, and actionable advice for supporting systemic changes so we can make this world a more inclusive, accepting place now and for future generations. Hey everybody, it's Dr. Karen, and welcome to episode 32 of the Are They 18 Yet podcast. This is the beginning of a three-part series about three problems with ADHD and autism intervention, and really just all interventions that are designed to help neurodivergence. So people who have some type of diagnosis that indicates that there is some kind of difference in the way that they are wired neurologically. So what I'm going to do in this episode is give you kind of an overview of why I'm talking about this topic. And I will also share the first shift with you that you can make if you are someone who is a neurodivergent or if you are supporting someone who is. I know that my listeners are a combination of speech pathologists, other types of educators, and also parents of neurodivergence who want to help the kids that they're supporting as much as possible so that they can lead productive, successful, happy lives. I know that that's always been my goal as a therapist and as a parent, And that's why I decided to become an SLP, and it's also why I went back and got my doctorate in special ed. But over the years, I've started to question what has traditionally been accepted as best practice 
And as I was learning different strategies and trying them out with my own students, I found myself feeling conflicted, sometimes wondering why I wasn't getting great results, and also just feeling conflicted when I had this voice in my head acknowledging that if it were me receiving this type of intervention, that I probably wouldn't like it. Mostly because I had actually experienced those types of interventions firsthand and found them just as traumatic and hard to deal with as some of my students were seeming to find them. And originally, I kind of dismissed these thoughts that were popping up because I thought, well, I'm I'm following what the research says, or I'm following what the experts are saying I'm supposed to do, so I guess this is okay. But as I've joined different groups centered around neurodiversity and heard stories from autistic people or people with ADHD, I have finally been able to put into words what has been bugging me for years. And part of this is because I have found that I actually have more in common with the neurodivergence than the neurotypicals because I'm one of them. And obviously, I will get more into that in a future episode. The goal of this series is to highlight some problems with some of the common practices when it comes to supporting those who have ADHD, autism, or both, or some other diagnosis with a neurological origin. And I share this as someone who has spent years in the field in the more traditional sense from getting degrees, doing academic research, and also from doing direct clinical work, and then also being a neurodivergent myself. So if you're involved with any of the neurodiversity groups, you know that many autistic adults or adults with ADHD are starting to share certain traumatizing experiences they've had growing up. But for the purpose of pointing out some key reasons why this trauma happens, I'm going to narrow it down to three key mistakes being made and share some shifts we can make so that we can start moving in the right direction. Now, before I get started, I wanted to share that in my schooling, I was always taught to use person-first language. So, for example, instead of saying an autistic person, you would say a person with autism. So I was taught to use that type of language instead of identity-first language, which would be saying something like an autistic person or an autistic. For this series and just in general, you will see that I am leaning more towards identity-first language because that is the preference of many neurodivergents. So obviously I respect all of the people who have taught me up to this point, but when it comes down to it, I really want to pay close attention to the people that I'm wanting to support. Now, before I get started with the shifts, obviously I always like to leave you with some kind of tangible advice that you can follow or some specifics So if you have been following this podcast for some time, you have probably heard me mention the time tracking journal. So over the next couple months, I will be sharing more and more resources and specific strategies 
to support neurodiversity, but I am going to be mentioning that one today because that is one of the key resources that I have that outlines a specific strategy that is going to help you make these shifts that I'm going to mention today because it is designed to help give your kids a strategy to help them move through some difficult tasks that they may be encountering during their day-to-day activities, whether it be homework assignments, anything that is mentally challenging for them that requires multiple steps, that might require them to make some shifts in their thinking, and also to start engaging in some positive self-talk to help talk them through something that's challenging for them and to help them become more resilient so that we are helping them move out of their comfort zone in a way that is affirming and positive and builds their self-esteem instead of traumatizing them and doing it in a way that is going to cause more harm than good. We want to make sure that we have a positive, supportive focus. And when we are pushing kids out of their comfort zones, we're doing it in a way that's healthy. So I will talk about how to do that in that time tracking journal and this episode today. So obviously, the place to go to check that resource out is drkarendudakbrannon.com backslash time journal. And that's going to outline a specific strategy that will help you to make these shifts that I'm going to share in this upcoming series. Again, that's drkarendudekbrandon.com backslash time journal. So now let's get into that first shift. The first shift that we want to make when supporting neurodivergence, whether it be someone who has been diagnosed with ADHD or autism or both or something else that impacts them neurologically, the first shift that we want to make is moving from strategies that focus on compliance to coming at it from a place of curiosity. So we're moving from compliance to curiosity. So during my doctoral program, many of the strategies that I learned were focused on increasing certain behaviors and decreasing others, commonly referred to as a behaviorist approach. So for individuals who are verbal, desirable behaviors might be using specific words or phrases or engaging in certain nonverbal communication behaviors such as eye contact or using different facial expressions, or even engaging in a conversation in a certain way for a certain length of time. To give you a little context, let's say, for example, you have someone who does not have any verbal language that they're using, they are nonverbal, and so we would be giving rewards versus taking away rewards depending on whether or not they vocalized or did some type of behavior that was 
something that we deemed to be acceptable communication, whether it be using words or using a specific word or phrase, or whether it be exchanging up a picture instead of using words to indicate that they want something. So that is one example. Another example would be for people who are not using eye contact in a way that neurotypicals commonly do. So for example, it's a social rule or it's considered to be a social rule in Western culture that you are looking at someone when you're talking to them. However, many autistic people don't engage in eye contact in the same way that neurotypicals do. So I have seen in the past that there's almost like a reward punishment system being used to reinforce or reward an autistic person for making a certain amount of eye contact because it's what we've deemed to be acceptable, appropriate, nonverbal communication. A final example is that what I have sometimes seen being done is that We want people to engage in conversation in a certain way. So many autistics will do more of a monologue type of interaction where they'll just talk instead of waiting for the person to respond and having a back and forth dialogue, which is a more more common way among neurotypicals to have a conversation. It's often what is expected of people. So Again, this is something that we consider to be acceptable. So I have seen in the past people being rewarded for behaviors like engaging in that back and forth dialogue. A final example that I will give, because we're also talking about ADHD, is that kids in school will be rewarded for sitting in their seat for a certain amount of time or not interrupting the class or doing their work for a certain amount of time. They get a sticker or a reward, or if all of their homework assignments get turned in, they get a special treat or a prize. So these are some examples of ways that a behaviorist approach or a reward punishment approach is often used when it comes to people who have ADHD or those who are autistic. So again, with all of these examples, what we're seeing is that there are certain types of behaviors that are thought to be, quote, good behaviors, and these things are rewarded, and they're given some kind of token or treat, and then it's not given, or there's some kind of punishment given if these behaviors aren't there, or if the individual engages in a behavior that we deem as inappropriate, unacceptable, undesirable, whatever it may be. So for example, instead of sitting in your seat, you are getting up out of your seat and moving around and wiggling. Or instead of engaging in a back and forth dialogue in a certain way or commenting and engaging in a conversation in a way that is absolutely on topic according to what neurotypicals might think, instead of just mentioning something that seems like 
it's not totally relevant, those types of things would be things that would be punished or discouraged. So those are just some examples of ways that this is often done currently or in the traditional way that I was often taught to address some of these behaviors that are commonly seen in neurodivergence. I have seen this approach used in the moment, but I've also seen this even extended throughout the day in classrooms. So it would go so far as to reward someone for acting in a certain way across the day or meeting certain behavioral expectations across entire class periods, for example. So a child might get a sticker if they got through their entire class and did what they were supposed to do. And then on the other hand, rewards were taken away or punishments were given if they didn't meet a certain behavioral expectation. So again, things like getting out of your seat, making noise, engaging in some type of movement or verbal outbursts, or even perseverating on certain topics and conversations instead of talking about exactly what the other person is talking about. So with these approaches, there are always good intentions behind them. Uh, We want people to be able to complete certain activities, which will allow them to learn and grow. So for example, the classroom behavior charts that I was mentioning or that behavior system, often it's we want kids to be engaging in behaviors that help them learn. We want them to be participating in class. So again, like I said, there are good intentions behind this approach. And then we also, if we notice that certain behaviors are impacting their ability to do the things that they need to do in order to be successful, such as complete assignments that are going to help them learn specific skills or engage in social interactions and, and make friendships. All of those things are really important. So like I said, these approaches all have the right idea behind them as far as what they're intending to do. But The problem with these strict behavioral approaches is that they look at behaviors on a superficial level without understanding why they're happening in the first place. And so what happens is that when we're trying to stop a behavior without understanding why it's happening and we're just trying to repress it, usually there's some need being met by that behavior. And if we don't understand what that need is, and we just try to repress it, we might be able to repress it in the moment. But when we do that, it can cause trauma because that need is not being met, or it causes there to be this pent up frustration. And that person is going to find out how to get that need met in some way. And if we let things bottle up like that, then a couple things happen. Number one, they don't learn a way that is functional and effective to meet that need. And we are more likely to see, again, because we're bottling things up, we are more likely to see those meltdowns and outbursts because their needs are not being met. And so we're not teaching them to engage in these behaviors 
in a way that is functional and effective. And we have to remember that when we are seeing these different behaviors in people who are wired a different way, many times the way to help them be successful is not going to look the same as it would for someone who does not have that same wiring. So for a neurotypical, when we're focusing on things like temporary compliance, it can often be very misleading because it looks in the moment like what we're doing is effective, but that's because The way that we're measuring effectiveness is by answering the question, how well did this person do the things that I demanded of them in this very moment, rather than how well am I teaching this person a way to self-manage and engage in behaviors that help them do things that are effective and productive for them over the long haul. We're not really looking at the long-term emotional impact that this is having. And we're also not teaching that person to think critically and problem solve and find ways that are going to be effective for them in the long haul when it comes to self-regulation and finding ways to help them motivate themselves and engage in the behaviors that they need. So for example, figuring out ways that they are going to be able to focus and have a conversation and build a relationship with someone else in a way that's going to be fulfilling for them or finish a homework assignment and stick with the challenging task. If all we're doing is just imposing demands on them without allowing them to have that autonomy and figure out ways that work for them, we're not really teaching them functional skills in the long term. All we're teaching them how to do is follow commands and repress behaviors that are meeting certain needs that they might have. For example, many kids with ADHD are punished for not completing homework because it's assumed that they're simply choosing to avoid work when in reality they may lack certain skills required to self-regulate and plan ahead. Punishing them without teaching them the skills that they need to do the task doesn't make any sense. Or someone might need to engage in some sort of movement to feel regulated and focused. It's really important for a kid to learn and understand that about themselves so that they can find ways to meet that need as they're doing challenging tasks. And another example would be someone with autism may find eye contact overstimulating. So if that's the case, then trying to repress those behaviors doesn't make any sense. What we want to do is teach those people ways that they can stay regulated and do the things that they need to do, whether it be having a conversation, engaging with someone else, or whether it be doing a difficult task, we want to teach them ways to do it in a way that makes sense for them, not in a way that looks, quote, normal for neurotypicals. Because remember, we're comparing apples to oranges here. How they do it might look totally different. So if we're not thinking more deeply about why these behaviors are happening and we're just trying to repress them and teach them to comply with demands, 
we're not really teaching them anything functional. Now, when I mention this, a lot of times people will push back and say, but wait a minute, this was so effective for so-and-so, and doesn't the research show that positive reinforcement works? It's a little more complicated and nuanced than that. So when I suggest that doing behavior charts and the sticker charts aren't the most effective way to help kids stay motivated. A lot of people will say, but don't adults respond to positive reinforcement? Don't people, for example, don't they go to work because they're getting a paycheck? Isn't that a form of positive reinforcement? Well, I used to think the same thing, but a while back, I read Dan Pink's book, Drive, which really shifted my thinking on that. And what he suggests from his research is that a lot of adults and really just people in general, we all want to do a good job and do work that is fulfilling. And when we find that work that is fulfilling, we don't necessarily need someone to be micromanaging us In order to do that work, we just naturally want to go above and beyond. And what he found with his research was that when people are micromanaged and when they are constantly given that positive reinforcement and external rewards, what that does is that it actually decreases that natural tendency to want to do a good job. What he found was that People who were allowed some autonomy at work actually performed better. I think a lot of people are seeing that this past year with the pandemic and a lot of people being able to work from home, that productivity increases when people have some autonomy. Now, that's not to say that people don't benefit from external accountability and structure. This is going to be especially important for People with ADHD, for example, structure is really important and having that discipline and someone to check in and to help you to move through certain tasks that you want to do, that's definitely important, but it doesn't mean that we need to have someone peering over our shoulder 100% of the time, giving us a sticker for every single thing that we do or On the contrary, being there to issue a punishment when we're not doing things exactly the way that they think we should be doing them. The key is finding that balance between providing enough structure, but still allowing people to have wiggle room to find their way of doing things that's effective for them. And we need to remember that when we're talking about neurodiversity, It's not always going to be done in a neurotypical way. There are many other ways to do things. There are definitely some subtle shifts that we can make to some of the common approaches that I have mentioned so far on this episode that can reframe them in a way that is healthier. So for example, with behavior charts, if you think of them more as data rather than as rewards. So for example, there has been evidence that shows when we track behaviors and we pay attention to our progress that that can be really motivating because we have an understanding of what worked and what didn't. So if you're using a behavior chart and you're framing it in a way that is not saying 
this sticker is your reward for doing whatever it is that I asked you to do. If you're thinking of it more as a way to self-monitor to say, hey, how do we do on the things that you decided that you should do today to help yourself complete your assignments more effectively? And you think of that sticker or whatever it is that you're using as a data point and just using it as information instead of focusing it on that sticker as the reward instead of we're looking at, okay, here are some behaviors that we want to increase because they're really important to you. And these stickers are just a way of looking back and seeing how we did. Then as long as you're focused on increasing those behaviors that are important to that person's success and not just trying to put them into this box of this is the way that you have to be, then that can be more effective when you frame it in that way. However, that's not how it's commonly done. A lot of times we're more focused on, here's your sticker for doing a good job. So there are some shifts that you can make when using a strategy like that. And obviously, you want to make sure that the person who is using that strategy isn't really agitated and upset every time you are drawing their attention to it. So that's something we want to be aware of. Another example of a way that we can make a shift with this is a lot of times people will say, okay, we're going to do this activity that is hard for a couple minutes, and then you're going to get this other activity that is your reward for doing that other thing for five minutes or whatever it is. And they kind of go back and forth between challenging behavior and then reinforcement behavior, instead of thinking of that behavior that they want to do. So whatever the activity is, that's kind of the quote reward. If we think of it more as a brain break or a sensory break, instead of this is your reward for doing the other thing, then what we're doing is instead of just focusing on compliance and these external rewards that may or may not be something that mimics real life, what we're doing is we're showing that person, okay, let's increase your tolerance for this behavior or this, this task that is challenging and we're working on it and it's hard work for you and we're giving you a break. You're actually teaching them that they can self-regulate. That is a strategy that adults often do. I've mentioned before in a previous episode, the Pomodoro technique that a lot of adults do when they have some kind of a difficult assignment. When I was mentoring doctoral candidates, I would often find that this technique was effective for them if they were having a hard time sitting down to write. So they would focus on doing a Pomodoro. So they would work for 30 minutes. They'd set that timer and then they'd have 10 minutes or so of a break. And the break really wasn't a reward. It was more of a way to self-regulate because if you find that you're doing something and you realize, oh, I'm getting distracted and I'm not on task, that's an important skill to learn and pay attention to, hey, am I still on task with what I'm supposed to be doing? And do I need to get up and move? Do I need to take a break? and come back? How long can I tolerate this task and still be focused on what I need to be doing? So if we're framing it that way, and obviously for a young child, we may be doing a lot of the structure for them. So maybe they're only focusing for five minutes before they get their 
their sensory break or whatever it is, but we can be talking them through it. Even though we're doing a lot of structuring for them when they're young, over time, as we do that and we do that process over and over again, we can teach them, hey, this is how how you can regulate yourself and focus on something that is a little bit harder for you. But again, if we're just focused on the rewards and we're not teaching them that self-talk of, hey, look at all these things that you were able to accomplish and and look here, you took your break and you got to move and, and then you went back and you were able to focus again. So those are all really important things that we can teach students. But if all we're focusing on is compliance, we miss those opportunities and we don't number one, get that understanding of why those behaviors are happening in the first place. Because sometimes we might not want to curb those behaviors. We want might not want to force people to do certain things if they are too challenging or dysregulating for someone. So if making eye contact is overstimulating and it causes the person to be less able to focus then if they aren't looking at the person, then maybe there's a better way that we can teach them to show that they're paying attention to someone. If we find that someone cannot sit still, then maybe we teach them to work with a standing workstation. So instead of trying to fit them into a neat little box of compliance, we want to figure out what works for them. And the only way that we can do that is to shift our focus from complying with certain behaviors to curiosity. Why is this behavior happening? So again, I'm not saying that when someone is engaging in behaviors that are clearly not functional and effective for them and that are impacting their ability to form relationships or learn and engage in class, for example. I'm not saying that it's never okay to draw them out of their comfort zone. What I am saying is that when we have that urge to want to control someone's behavior and say, this is this is bad behavior, we want to stop these disruptive behaviors, instead of focusing on controlling that person, what we want to do is shift from asking the question, how do I get this person to do the thing that I think they should be doing? Or how do I get this person to comply with my demands? Instead, we want to shift to what's going on here and how can this person become more successful at things important to them? When we shift from compliance and insisting on certain behaviors and we move to curiosity, that's when we can start figuring out how to help people engage in behaviors that are effective for them in a way that's not traumatizing to them. This wraps up the first shift that we can make when supporting neurodiversity, especially when it comes to ADHD and autism. Again, that first shift was going from compliance-based strategies to coming from a place of curiosity and really understanding why those behaviors are happening instead of just trying to suppress them or replace them with other behaviors that we think are more appropriate and effective. 
In the next episode, I'm going to talk about the second shift we can make, which is going from focusing on appropriate behaviors to focusing on functional and effective behaviors. So stay tuned for that in the next episode, episode 33. Now, one of the most common areas where I've seen people use those authoritarian compliance-based approaches is with things like homework or chores or following directions and things like that. So usually those things are multi-step tasks that require a lot of self-regulation and planning. And so that is where I see a lot of people making the mistake of going to reward punishment types of systems instead of understanding the root cause of why the individual is not completing the task in the first place. And in many cases, the root cause of the procrastination, the defiance, or whatever it is that the person thinks is an undesirable behavior, a lot of times the root cause is because there is a key set of skills that are lacking when it comes to planning and self-regulation and also just mindset and beliefs about a certain task. When we think something is difficult, of course, we're going to have that tendency to avoid it. So I show you how to work through all of these things in a way that is healthy and affirming with the time tracking journal. So the time tracking journal is a strategy that you can do in just about 10 to 15 minutes a day if you are focusing on some type of task that requires multiple steps. This is something that can be used in the home environment, can also be something that you could use in an educational setting like a school to teach kids the executive functioning skills that they need in order to do multi-step tasks. When we're talking about these types of things, there are so many different things to consider. There are the mindset shifts that need to happen to get yourself over those hurdles. There is the ability to plan and understand what steps you need to take to complete the task. So I give you a strategy that you can use to do that with your kids in the time tracking journal. To check it out and get access, all you need to do is go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash time journal. Again, that's drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash time journal. For now, we will wrap up episode 32. And also remember, it helps us so much to get this information into the hands of people who need it if you leave us a five-star review on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcast. And also, if you share this episode with your friends or colleagues who might need this information. So thank you so much for listening, and I will see you in episode 33.
Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments without just teaching to the test? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com backslash BE to learn how IXL's research-based teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com backslash BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into the master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out My Flex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE.